forever. Dog. Welcome to Relatively Healthy. I'm Janie Stoller, and on today's show, we are addressing infertility and IVF. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like growing up, I had no understanding of infertility as an issue, let alone a very prevalent one. I felt like every TV show would have someone having sex and immediately getting pregnant, and then like having the baby the next episode, which is a whole other set of expectations we grew up with. But I had no idea that so many people struggled with infertility. And then I remember with IVF, like my understanding of that came about with people like the Octomom, where it was like, oh, they had a fertility treatment and they had a billion kids. So I just don't know if we've had any sort of like mainstream depiction of truly what it's like to experience infertility and what it's like to go through IVF. So I'm excited to talk about this because I want to learn more, uh, especially for me, like as a woman choosing to have kids later, this is probably going to be like a very important issue for myself. And I would love to talk uh, with someone who has done the IVF and has experienced infertility herself. So I have on the show today, my friend, Carrie, thank you so much for being on. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And so just so we get uh, the definitions and everything right up top, infertility is the inability of a sexually active couple to achieve pregnancy within one year. And it affects about 12% of the U.S. population of reproductive age. And in heterosexual couples, the cause is about 50% of the time due to an issue on the male side and 50% female. So first of all, that is a really large segment of the population, 12%. And um, I think it's also important to point out in that sort of definition and that framework that half the time it is not because of you know, the woman, it is because of something on the man's side. I just want to make sure we're all very clear on that. Um, Yes. And then also IVF, so like to define that, that's the process of fertilizing eggs that have been extracted and then receiving, uh, taking a sperm sample and then manually combining them in a lab so that the embryos are then transferred into the uterus once they've been fertilized. And so about this process, it's just common knowledge that it often takes more than one round. It can get very expensive and uh, sometimes it just straight up doesn't work. So that's sort of like the basis of these two topics that um, I think are interesting to come in with. Also, in terms of history, the world's first IVF baby was born in 1978 and approximately 6.5 million IVF-conceived babies have been born around the world since. So since that time in 1978, has become very common. So Carrie, when did you first realize you might be experiencing infertility? It was kind of a long journey. Um, I, I kind of had this feeling my mom had some infertility issues and it was in the eighties. And so they really didn't know what they were doing and she didn't do IVF. She really uh, didn't do much of anything and end up having kids, but I just sort of had it in my head. And so I stopped taking my birth control and it's kind of like what you said, like you, you spend all this time when you're a teenager and you're in your young twenties and you know, you're like, where can I buy the closest plan B pill? Because if something happens, you know, I'm going to be pregnant, obviously. And it just so does not happen like that. (laughs) And uh, I just didn't get my period for a really long time after stopping my birth control pills. And that actually had happened twice before I'd stopped taking birth control. And then uh, it just took a really long time. So I went to see a doctor and wasn't like a super rush or anything, but kind of just talked to her about it. And she, I said, I'm kind of in a rush because my dad has a terminal illness. And I just like, it was like my dream. I just needed my dad to meet my child. Mm -hmm. So she said, you don't have to wait for a year of not getting pregnant to seek an infertility doctor out because if there's something wrong, you should probably know about it. So I kind of had that in the back of my head and waited a couple more months. And then I went to another doctor and I had researched some stuff and found out um, 
some information on PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, Mm -hmm. and was really nervous that I could have that. And so went in and she was like, no, no, you you don't look like a PCOS patient. Uh, We'll run some blood work and we'll do an ovarian ultrasound to check. But it's, you know, you're going to be fine. And so I did the blood work. Everything's fine. Did the ultrasound, go into her office, and she's like, oh, classic PCOS. Mm. And I'm like, I'm like, really? Because my hormone levels are fine. I'm not insulin resistant, but apparently I have uh, polycystic ovaries, which isn't even really a cyst like you would think about a cyst, but uh, we all have cysts on our ovaries, and that's what grows an egg every month. And so some people have a really low number, and that can be an issue because you don't have very many eggs. And sometimes you have a really high number. And that's when they then classify it as polycystic ovarian syndrome. So it's still a little uh, iffy out there for me about, I don't know, really, what it is or what it's caused by. And, um, but basically, it was like, you know, you're probably gonna have some issues here. So I went straight to an infertility specialist after that, because I was just over that doctor, who kind of, you know, said, I don't know, just sort of was, didn't seem to know what she was really talking about necessarily. And I had this doctor who said, don't wait a year. If you really want to have a baby quickly, you can just go see a doctor. So luckily there's a um, specialist in PCOS here in Seattle. And I was able to get in with her and I had started a drug called metformin, which is actually for insulin resistance, but they found that people with PCOS, it can help them start to ovulate. So I had started to ovulate and get periods before I even saw the infertility specialist, but figured, uh, like, let's get this, let's get this, this train moving. Like we've, we don't have much time and I really want to get this done. So we started with, uh, we saw her and she was super optimistic. And there's this uh, pill you can take that kind of makes you ovulate and um, you do timed intercourse with this pill. So you start at a certain point in your cycle, you take the pill, you stop taking the pill, you have sex, and then you see if you're pregnant. So when they start that with the infertility uh, specialists, they will also check the male because obviously they don't want you to be doing this for months and months and then to find out you had no chance anyways because like you said, it's 50% and 50%. So we were feeling super optimistic. It already felt like, uh, like, not like the love was out of it, but kind of because it was, you know, I was like taking this pill and it was just kind of medical at that point. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of frustrating, but um, so my husband went in and he did the semen analysis. And that is when we found out that he has very low sperm count. And on top of that, none of the sperm who were living, um, were moving. Mm. So they couldn't get to where they needed to go. They were twitching, which was a good sign. But all of this is so new to me. They were twitching. (laughs) That's what they said. Okay. Okay. (laughs) That's what they could tell who was alive and who was not. And so there was, I say only about a million sperm, which is like (laughs) super, super low. Uh, I forget like what the normal is, but like some people have like 40 million sperm. It's, oh like, my insane. God. So they were all like, Oh, you only have a million sperm. We were like, really? That's a, like, that seems like a lot of chances. Is that baby. random? <laughs> yeah. Like what causes that? I mean, I know it's like supposedly from wearing certain underwear or putting a laptop on your penis, but, um, <laughs> it's also, it's just like luck, right? It's just a crazy gamble. Yeah. So, uh, so after we got that diagnosis, Uh, My doctor said, you know, go to see the urologist in the practice. He's uh, super specialized in male infertility. And he was like, you do not need to stop riding your bike. You do not (laughs) need to change your underwear type. You do not need to like the whole computer thing. They were like, that does not make you like infertile. This is so which is like crazy because that's what I'm thinking. And I'm telling my husband, like, stop putting your cell phone in your front pocket. You're radiating. Right, (laughs) right. And he's just like rolling his eyes and finally he's all validated by the actual doctor. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, so the doctor said it's just genetic. It's kind of like luck of the draw. And um, nobody else in his family that we know of has ever had any sort of issue. And it's just sort of like one of those things that just happens. And it's, it is crazy because I, I like totally broke down after my diagnosis. I like, I cried for four days straight. I 
you know, continuously cried for like four months, I would like go hide in our closet and just be like, I'm letting you down and you can't have kids because of me and what's wrong with me. And I felt just like internally broken, which was just such a new like feeling to have and Mm -hmm. all of this guilt and blame I put in myself. And I, I just thought like, what if, what if we didn't know that I had that issue? Or what if I didn't even have an issue at all? And we tried for so long. And it's always the woman I feel Mm -hmm. like who's, who's like, it's gotta be my fault when it's reproduction. It's like, it's gotta be, there's so many parts to a woman. Like, is it your uterus? Is it your ovaries? Is it your ovulation? Is it all these little pieces? And, and a lot of the times it is a male factor. Mm -hmm. And and you don't know till you know. And so that's just sort of like, that is what ended up kind of changing our life was finding that out. And that doctor kind of was pretty straightforward and was like, listen, um, your only chance at pregnancy is going to be, is going to be conceiving a child outside of yourself. <laughs> like this is not going to happen inside of your fallopian tubes or your uterus. This mm-hmm. is going to happen in a dish, but everything else looks good. Everything else pointed to the fact that like I would be able to carry a baby and a baby would implant and all of that stuff, which is not easy for a lot of women. So we, in the end, we kind of were like, this is, if you're going to have to do IVF, we had a best case scenario there. Like we had something clear cut. Some people have uh, like, no, they can't, they can't tell a reason. Everything mm-hmm. looks great. Like you're ovulating and you have a thick lining and all these things, but you just can't get pregnant. And so we had an actual reason. So it was kind of like cut and dry. It wasn't like, oh, maybe we should try IVF, but what if that doesn't work? And like, we just knew, we knew we had to get a sperm and an egg and it it wasn't going to be the sperm, like naturally swimming to the egg. It was going to be somebody doing it for us. And And it sounds like you knew at that point you wouldn't need a surrogate, which I'm sure at this point in the process, some people, that's where they learn that. It's like your body wouldn't be able to sustain the yeah. uh, fetus. So you're going to need a surrogate. Right. And I guess there was there was still a little bit of unknown because I'd never been pregnant before. It's not like I got pregnant and aborted a, a fetus or it's not like mm-hmm. I got pregnant and I even like had a miscarriage. So th- there was an unknown, but all signs pointed. I mean, I was I was 30 years old. I wasn't even 30. I was 29. Actually, I was about to turn 30 when we were going through this. So, um, so they were just sort of like, you're a healthy young woman. And, and so, yeah, we were pretty sure that that piece was gonna, was gonna fit in. So Mm -hmm. it was mostly just the sperm was not gonna make it to an egg. Got it. And to what you were talking about before, just to touch on like how emotional it was for you to feel like you, there was something like it sounds like it felt like there was a deficiency or like you felt like you couldn't do something that you really wanted to do. What was that feeling like? Like what I, I, you know, I, I think with so many people, it's just so deep, deeply ingrained this need to have a child and to have a child with your egg. Like that is something that, uh, no one can sort of understand unless they feel that. Like, did you feel like it was touching on that when you felt like those first, the the first phase of going through all of this? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think until you get to that point where you actually want to make a child or have a child, you, like you can't fully understand that feeling, but you just, you want it so bad. And like, that was one of the things, the things that shocked me was like, so many people know, oh, it usually doesn't happen in the first month. But once you want a baby, it's like, like you want it to happen tomorrow. Like, I wish we could just control all of this and be like, okay, ovulate tomorrow so that I can have sex and then ovulate every single day until I have a baby. Yeah. But it only happens once a month. And, and I think like a lot of womanhood for some women, definitely not for everybody, obviously, but for some women, a lot of that Uh, feeling like like a woman or like a female comes from reproduction and I think I mean it's probably biologically linked Mm -hmm. but it was just something that I wanted so badly and I wanted it like yesterday and then you add in the complexity of like the fact that my dad's got this terminal illness and I just had this vision of him holding a baby in a cubs onesie Mm. he's a huge fan (laughs) and it was just like it was it was just so hard to think that because of my body and 
And then you wonder, like, what was it? Was it something that I did in my lifetime? Was it environmental that gave me this issue? Right. Or right. I mean, of just course, all sorts of blame. And did you at that point reach out to other women or talk or find resources of support, like, you know, or or anyone who had gone through it? Because I feel like people don't talk about it a lot. It's very personal. It's very painful. So I'm wondering if there was anyone in your life who, you know, could relate or could comfort you in that way? I, I really didn't. I was, I was pretty ashamed um, of the PCOS diagnosis Mm -hmm. and I didn't really, I'm the first one of my kind of like closer knit friend group to have a baby. And so I didn't really feel like I had many people to reach out to. I, at the point of PCOS, I definitely did a lot of research online. And of course you can find like message boards and stuff and old messages that people sent. So I would go through all of that. I never actually interacted on my own, but when it came to IVF, um, when we actually started that process, there was, there's like a Facebook group that rotates through each month. So you can, I typed in like June, 2017 IVF and I found a group and it's like, all these women join the group who are all doing IVF in the same month. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then you can just talk back and forth and ask questions and just learn so many things about everybody's situations and different doctors, protocols and all that sort of stuff. So that was when I really started to reach out, but I was super private. Mm -hmm. Um, while I was going through it. And I think most of it is like, you have that unknown. I mean, I'm just, I didn't want to like broadcast the world and say, I'm going to do IVF and then have everybody contacting me being like, did it work? Did it work? Right. Like what, what if this never works? What if I never have a baby? What if I miscarry eight times? Mm -hmm. And the last thing I want to do is like update my Facebook status (laughs) to say, Hey, I miscarried my IVF baby again. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I mean, there's so many things attached to it. And I think it's partially, it is self-perpetuating because it's not talked about. So then I feel like from what I understand, it is just harder to talk about. And like, there's a lot of, it's just very personal. It's just very, very personal. And um, I mean, we'll we talk about this later, but I'm always really curious, like what you would say, to someone who has a friend who's dealing with infertility or maybe starting IVF? Like, how do you support someone um, who's going through that difficult time? Yeah, I think like the biggest thing I learned going through IVF was just like letting myself do whatever made me okay. Mm -hmm. Like not even happy, but just okay. So um, even if you have a friend who you think has been trying and maybe having difficulties and you invite them to your birthday party and they don't come, try not to take that personally and try to, you know, recognize, or definitely if you know that they're going through some sort of, sort of infertility battle, because just even just like happy moments in other people's lives can just be really hard when you're mm-hmm. feeling so heartbroken. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, that's another thing is like, you always get that advice of like, um, try this lube or like try having <laughs> sex this way. And you're just like, I mean, oh my that's God. it's like, it's just so personal because not only is it about like babies and your reproductive organs, but it's also about like sex. And right. it's just, it's just, you know, talking with anybody about that. And then you get the, like, um, have you thought about adoption? Oh and if you God. say, no, I don't want to adopt. I want to have my own baby. Like, you know, Joe down the street just had sex one night and got to have a baby. Why can't I just ask for that? Yeah. I'm not a bad person because I don't want to adopt or I haven't considered it yet. Um, but you know, that's none of your business and don't go judging that or the whole, like, if you just stop trying, like, Oh, I have a friend who went on vacation and she just stopped stressing about it. Oh my God. That's the worst advice. (laughs) I hear that with so many things. I also like, that's a classic dating advice too. It's like when you're not looking, they'll come along. It's like, what (laughs) is your fucking deal where you're coming at me with this? You insensitive awful person. It's just like it, the general themes are like, don't give advice unless I have <laughs> asked you for that advice. Don't, you know, judge what I what I want to do and what I decided. Don't pretend you know more than me. I mean, it's just like, it's true. Like anything, it's like grief or like divorce or anything in life where a person doesn't feel great. Just like, just be supportive. 
just be supportive. Oh my God, I'm ripping my hair out. It's cool. Um, <laughs> it is. And it's like, if someone gave me that advice before we knew about, you know, the male factor, it's like, this is cut and dry guys. Like no amount of de-stressing and vacation is going to make my husband's sperm move. Like, definitely not. Just, and it's like, thank it you for the lube recommendation. I'm going to like have to get <laughs> my eggs taken out of my body now. I really appreciate the thought though. Really, really cute yeah. advice. So what was IVF like? Like, what was the process like? What happens? Um, It was super hard. I resisted finding anything out about it because I was just telling myself, you're not going to have to do IVF. I was just terrified of having to do it because it just, it does make it so medical. Like I wanted a baby to be created in love and it probably sounds kind of hokey, but you know, like it's intimate and it's, it's special or, you know, whatever. But, um, it was just like, okay, wow, there's going to be a lot of people in the room when this happens. Mm, Right. It's just not the way you imagine it. It's not the way you want it. That totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, we always talk about like, oh, little girls, they always dream about their weddings. And like, you don't think about it, but you're like, oh, little girls, they always dream about like having a baby by like by sex. Right. And like, you just assume that that's, what's going to be your way and like maybe there'll be a raucous fun night or maybe there'll be a loving sweet night whatever but that's how it's going to happen is like between you and your husband who you love or you and somebody that you love um and it just it like just realizing that it wasn't going to happen like that just um was pretty hard and I was just sort of I was super naive about it too because I hadn't done any research on it and I just felt so stupid because I was like okay so I release an egg every month and like somehow I guess they go in there and they sort of like suck it out. Like, is that how it happens? And then I started doing the research and talking to the doctor and that's so not how it happens. Um, so obviously they, they want to get in one cycle, they want to get as many eggs as possible. Um, not, I guess not as possible that is safely possible because if they get too many, there's this risk called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome So if you have too many eggs and your ovary is too large, then you can end up having this uh, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. And I think like something like your, your capillaries get leaky and then you have fluid in your belly and it can cause respiratory distress and a lot of pain and nausea, um, vomiting. It, it can be like very serious. Uh, There have been, I think like a few deaths related to it, but it's very it's, I mean, fatalities are uncommon, but it, it can be a pretty common thing that happens. So, um, so first of all, first of all, we walked in the doctor and she was like, okay, do you want to do IVF? I know it's very expensive and not everybody can do it. We can also talk about sperm donors. Mm. And that was like shocking to me because I was like, no, I mean, if there's any way that we can have a biological child, of course, we're going to try and do that. It just... We, I had not even considered or like thought about that some people might not be able to afford it and therefore they might need to get a different sperm. Yeah. Uh, speaking also of the money piece, like how much do you, because it's very expensive, like how much do you know about how expensive it is going in? Like what do they present you in terms of here's how much this could cost? Um, so our clinic was very transparent. You don't know for sure until you get your protocol, which is kind of like your schedule and the medication can fluctuate. So if I was somebody who didn't uh, have very many egg follicles and so then they would have needed to give me lots of medicine to make sure like all of them grew eggs and got them going. I, you know, had too many because of the polycystic ovaries. And so we knew my medication would be on the lower end, but they still tell you it can be anywhere between like 500 to $2,000. And it can be more if you don't, um, if you don't have very many eggs, if you need a lot of medication and that's just the medication. And then the clinic actually breaks down all of their fees and stuff. So we knew with my type of protocol at our clinic was going to be about $13,000. And so that was like the whole process was for, for 13. Yeah. And that was one. And we had um, another option because like you kind of said in the beginning, um, sometimes it doesn't work in one IVF cycle. So then you have to do more. So they had this 
like plan where you get three cycles for like the price of one and a half cycles and they guaranteed you to get one baby and if you didn't they would give you all your money back but you had to pay all this money so it was like okay if the first round worked then we would lose out on all this money over that we paid this is also crazy i'm picturing like deal or no deal like it's just such a crazy like okay well what's the most like let's gamble you know on this that's crazy it really was. And it that was it was so hard because it was like, what if we make the wrong decision? What if we pay all this money and nothing happens? Or uh, like we wanted, we knew that we wanted more than one kid. So we were hoping to get some frozen, mm-hmm. uh, frozen embryos. And so it was like, I don't know, it was just, it was such a gamble. Like our, our doctor could plug in our ages, the reason for infertility. And then she had this like whole sheet that she worked out that was like, you have like a whatever percent chance of getting pregnant. And if we put in one egg, then you have this percent. If we put in two eggs then you have this percent and all this stuff for us, but it was never like a hundred percent, obviously. And Mm so, you know, anything less than a hundred percent, like just makes you really stressed out and, and nervous for the whole thing. So we ended up not taking that whole, like pay for pay for one and a half and get three if you need it Mm -hmm. sort of thing, just because we had pretty good odds in terms of IVF. And so, so we decided, let's just, let's just do one and then we'll go from there if we really need to. And was any of it covered by insurance? Uh, at first, no. So, uh, my husband switched jobs. So I guess we didn't really know. I, I can't, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't remember. And the, the actual cycle, like the 13 grand, that cycle plus the medication. Uh, I think one of my medications was covered. One or two medications was covered because it was like estrogen and progesterone, which are two super common um, hormones in your body. And so I think they're they're like pretty low cost and stuff, and they're covered for most everything through insurance. Nothing else was mm. that round. Okay, got it. So that's something- and some states require, like in Illinois, it would have been covered. The the state requires um, yeah. it to be covered, but in Washington State, they don't. They don't require it at all. I was so. really surprised in doing research for this. I was really surprised to see it is so different state by state what's co- what's mandated to be covered by insurance. It really varies. It's all over the place. It's crazy. It, yeah, it is. And the cost, and also it sounds like the cost varies a lot. I'm sure that came up on those, on like the Facebook groups where it's like there's certain clinics that charge a certain amount. I mean, it's expensive but I feel like there's also like you know like the luxury clinic or like the celebs go and then there's you know like where the real people go and there's probably like a big range in there and all the different promises that those clinics make in conjunction with the cost so I'm sure it's just really overwhelming all of the information all the numbers of the cost is like just a lot versus what you're talking about the vision of having sex and having a kid like that's sort of what we expect to happen so then you're sitting yeah. there with like a fact sheet about your odds and then, you know, handing over a big chunk of change. Different situation. Um, so then when you are going through it, like how, when do you find out if you are pregnant? Like how does that work in terms of doing IVF and then finding out if you're pregnant? Yeah. So, uh, so you go through suppression, uh, you have to sign all these like, uh, consent forms. Like, um, if the fertility clinic burns down and all of my frozen embryos perish in the fire, then I don't hold you liable for that. (laughs) Or if there's an earthquake and you lose my embryos, that's okay. I'm not going to like sue you for it. So that's pretty crazy. And then, uh, then they make sure that you're suppressed is what they call it. So you just can't have like any, um, like, raging hormones basically in your body and then you start all the injections to stimulate your ovaries to grow a bunch of eggs and that goes on for um i mean they they can't tell you how many days it totally depends on your body and your body's reaction to the stimulations but throughout that time you're having to go in every at least every three days if not every two days and have a transvaginal ultrasound Um, so all of these ultrasounds are like a wand that they stick up your vagina to look at your ovaries and your uterus, which is like, it just feels so violating. And, um, it's just like not the most fun experience. And so you're going all the time and they're looking and they're measuring every follicle that's measurable. And they're, they're seeing 
how mature they are. And then they're taking your, you do a blood test every single one of those days. And they're seeing to make sure your estrogen is not too high because too high estrogen can then, I don't know if it either causes or if it just signals the ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Um, but you're going from like, like, you know, zero, just normal estrogen levels to the, like, you can get possibly as high as a woman who's six months pregnant. Oh my God. And this is within the span of like 11 days. So there's like, I know, I'm sure that this is true. There's a commonly known idea that women who are taking or doing fertility treatments are, their mood is all over the place. I mean, you're pumping your body full of hormones at a crazy rate. And I bet you were feeling it. I bet those hormones were affecting you. Yeah, it took a, I was kind of shocked. It took a little bit longer to kick in, but I also, I also was able to frame my life such that I, I did things that wouldn't make me upset. Or at the time I was the nanny, which was difficult in itself going through infertility like going to library story time with the lady who's pregnant with her third child it's yeah. like I just want one and you're already having three and you probably had sex three times to have your babies and like I'm going home to go take injections tonight um but I had like pretty peaceful days like I had a nap time every day and and so I just kind of like just did fun stuff to kind of keep me even keeled but it was you definitely start to feel it um, in the end. And yeah, it was, it was all over the place. And then it's kind of like a drop and it, it kind of, I didn't tell myself like, maybe this was just, you know, getting me ready for pregnancy because that's also going to be insane. So yeah. Crazy. Um, so then how long did it take? So I ended up doing uh, stimulations. So we would do it every night. There were two shots. I would prepare them. Uh, One was like a click shot. So you just like clicked until you got to the right number and injected. And uh, my husband always did the injections because I did not want to do them to myself. And then one, you actually had to like, you got like a vial of powder and you had to mix it with the saline and then drop back up to your dosage. And it was like, I was like, I didn't go to like, you know, I'm not a nurse or anything. I can't believe we're just doing this. Although they did have like an injection class at our clinic. And so we, we were able to like do fake injections into foam and stuff to practice um, and find out, which was really nice to do that. So we did two at night uh, for five days. And then on the fifth day, because your some of your eggs are getting so big that your body could just release them and just be like, what is happening to me? We need to ovulate because I, there's, you know, going to be a million babies here. And so then you start taking an injection in the morning that gave me a huge welt and itched and that keeps them from ovulating themselves. So they do all this monitoring until they get big enough to show that, that there's a bunch that are mature and ready to um, have their kind of like final maturation process. So naturally we all release um a hormone that helps whatever lead follicle we have in just a given month to have the final maturation and then ovulate. So they want to mimic that process with all of these eggs that you have and then go in and take them out before your body actually releases them. So the timing is just super specific. So you have to do your trigger shot at like a very specific time at night because they, they have to plan to retrieve them before your body will release them because then they're all lost. So you have a, a trigger shot at the end that mimics that body's like maturation process. And so usually it's like a, an intramuscular one that is really painful, but because I was getting so many follicles, they got scared of the hyperstimulation syndrome. And that actually gets worse when you have uh, the pregnancy hormone. So if you get pregnant and you're at risk for this hyperstimulation syndrome, it can get a lot worse. And so they're very careful with that. So the trigger shot is usually that pregnancy hormone. So they switched my trigger shot to a different shot, which was awesome because then I got to buy more medicine for more money. <laughs> and we triggered on the 11th day. And then you have one wait day and then you have your surgery for the egg retrieval the next day after that. So on day 12, basically, oh, I had my surgery. Got it. And what does the surgery like involve? Um, you go completely under. So um, fresh sperm is the best sperm to mix with an egg to make a baby. 
And oh, and I should mention because uh, John's sperm weren't really moving, they wouldn't have gotten into an egg. So usually they'll just put the sperm in a petri dish with an egg and they'll all go at it and they'll fertilize and then they watch it. For us, they, we had to pay like an extra $1,800 to have them take a small needle and they suck a single sperm that looks really healthy and good up and then they stick that needle into the egg and then they inject the sperm in directly into the egg to fertilize it. Got it. So, so you, that was kind of like an extra step. An extra step. And that's like around the, the is that the same day that you're going under? Yeah. So, so we go in and I like have to get all ready for the surgery and I've got like, you know, like a little cap on and stuff. And, um, oh, and I should mention, it's like super uncomfortable at the end of stimulations because your ovaries have so many eggs that are ready. It is like painful. You are bloated because oh there are these huge organs in your abdomen like sitting down, I was really tender. I had to sit so carefully. I had to stand up really carefully. You have to make sure that you don't have any like impact. Like because I was a nanny, if the little boy started like kicking or something towards me, I had to get away because they can rupture. Um, oh my God. Like walking became difficult for me towards the end because your ovaries are just huge. You can feel them. They're heavy. I couldn't lay on my side. So that was crazy. So you're finally like, at retrieval day. And, um, yeah, so I go in and we're both in the room and we're like getting ready for surgery and stuff. And then they say, you know, like, okay, we're ready. I just like walk back to the surgery room and they have like the most massive insane stirrups ever because you're going to be all floppy. Like you're going to be asleep. So they have to like stabilize your whole body and they go in, uh, through your vagina. So to, they take a huge needle and they stick it through the wall of your vagina up into your uh, ovary and they do ultrasound at the same time so that they can see where the needle is in relation to all your little egg follicle sacs. And then they aspirate them from there into the needle. So that's how the surgery actually happens. And while I am having this lovely procedure done, <laughs> sticking a huge needle through the walls of my vagina, my husband gets to go down the hall and masturbate. Ain't and that the truth? Sperm. <laughs> oh, Carrie. Like, this is messed up. That's life for you, isn't it? That's just everything right there. You could just condense it all down to that thesis statement. <laughs> he gets to masturbate down the hall, as he always does. Oh, my God. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't like, you know, the most lovely. It's like a plastic bench and a bunch of porn and stuff. But I'm yeah, like... Yeah, I'm so sorry for him. What a horrible <laughs> experience. Um so, oh my God. Okay, so this is happening. What an intense day. Like there's so much going on in this day. It's all coming down to this. You're gonna explode. This is crazy. And so how long, like you come you come back up probably what, in like a couple of hours? I don't even think that. I mean, I think it took like 15 or 30 minutes. Oh, okay. It's, it's super fast. Got yeah, it. I mean, they, they do put you completely under because um, it can be really painful. And after, so like after you ovulate every month naturally, your egg, the sac that the egg came out of fills with fluid and it produces the um, the hormone progesterone. And that then supp supports a pregnancy if you are in fact pregnant. And then it, it just sort of like collapses if you're not pregnant and you have your period. That's how it usually works. And so after the surgery, after they aspirate all these eggs out, the sacs fill with fluid and create progesterone. And then that that's part of hyperstimulation syndrome. Like if you have too many sacs that are filling with too much fluid, then that's when your body kind of like goes crazy and has these issues. Um, but you're also like still in a lot of pain because your ovaries are still really big. They still have like all this fluid in them and stuff. And, and it can be painful. Um, I mean, how they're like poking a needle through you and, and poking them into your ovaries and stuff. Like it is traumatic. And so luckily I, I came out of it and didn't have much pain at all. I was like, my, my pain is at a zero. They'd already given me some pain meds. So that definitely helped. And they send you home with pain meds. Um, but yeah, so so I wasn't in a lot of pain. I was the next couple of days. I did take three days off of work. Yeah. And then when do you find out like the next phase? Like when do you find out if this round works? Like do they implant it and then that's it? And then you go and see? Yeah. So there's, there's kind of like two options that you can do a fresh cycle or you can do a frozen cycle. And I knew I was at high risk for ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome because I had so many follicles because of the polycystic ovaries. And so... Um, if you look like you're going to get the hyperstimulation syndrome, they will cancel the fresh cycle. So the fresh cycle is basically treating egg retrieval day as your day of ovulation. 
Typically, they want to put back the embryos at day five. They're five days old. And um, so you would go back five days after your egg retrieval and get um, an embryo put in. So immediately following the surgery, I woke up. uh, My husband came back. My doctor came back. And she said we were able to get 31 eggs out, which is a really great number. It's on the high end. Um, She said to do a fresh transfer in our clinic, our threshold is 30. And so you're one over. Um, So basically she was telling me like she didn't want to do a fresh transfer. And I was just crushed. I mean, like I said before, like I had spent like how long waiting to just get pregnant, get pregnant. And I wanted a fresh transfer so badly. And so I kind of pushed her on it and was like, I feel great. I have had an easy time. I mean, it was not fun, but compared to a lot of people, I had a very easy stimulation time. I had a very easy egg retrieval. I was already feeling good after coming out of it. And so she said, okay, listen, I'll entertain this idea, but I want to run your progesterone level because if your progesterone level is too high, that can cause, like we can put a great embryo in there and you can be you know, ready to have a baby. But if your progesterone is too high, that can end up affecting the embryo and it will become not viable and you will basically waste an embryo. So what they do is they, they call you later to check on you and stuff. And she kind of talked to me um, later that day and said, your progesterone is pretty high. It's at a level that we wouldn't feel comfortable getting you pregnant basically. So my dreams of a fresh transfer went out the window. So they freeze all of the embryos that end up making it at that point um, after five days. So they, the lab, uh, they like, they're like babysitters of your little embryos. Like they check on them every day. So they create them that day. They, they inject the sperm. And then the next day, um, I guess we found out I had 31 eggs retrieved and then 26 of them were actually mature. So they could only, you know, put, um, sperm into 26 of them. So we had 26 little embryos growing. The next day they call you, they check on all your little embryos and they call you and they told us, um, 18 were still alive. And then they have like a rating process. So one was poor, four were fair and 13 were good. And then the next day they, they called again and the poor embryo had died off. It stopped growing and we still had 17 embryos growing. And then day four, they don't check on them because they won't, they won't do anything regardless on day four. And then day five is kind of like the big, the big day. You want to have day five embryos that are ready to freeze. So we found out there were 13 embryos that were still still alive and there were two good embryos and one fair embryo and they met the freezing criteria. So they froze those three embryos that day and they left 10 to grow. And then on day six, we found out we had two more good quality embryos that they ended up freezing. So all in all, we got five embryos frozen at the end of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, because we had to freeze everything, it was more money because now we have to do a frozen embryo transfer, which involves more ultrasound monitoring, more blood work monitoring. Uh, They had to thaw the eggs, which costs money. And then we had to pay for the actual transfer of the eggs into me. So that added, I think in that round, it added about $2,000 to actually do the frozen transfer cycle. So I, I pushed my doctor into doing uh, like a quicker frozen transfer. So it was kind of a fresh frozen transfer. You get your period about two weeks after doing IVF, um, just like you would a natural period after you ovulate. And usually they want you to wait until your next cycle to do a transfer. But because I never actually ended up with the ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, I was feeling great. My hormone levels were back to normal already, which not everybody has that happen. She, she said, okay, let's go ahead and let's just do this now. So I was, that's what I loved about my clinic was they were very much like, this is your process. And they listen to you. They give you options. She was willing to work with me and, and say, okay, I'll try this. I'll try this new kind of protocol with you. So I was, I mean, I loved, I loved our clinic and I loved our doctors. They were very ethical and they were just, just listen to their patients a lot. And then when did you find out like if the pregnancy was going to stick? Yeah. So, uh, so we did, um, I had to start estrogen pills and then, uh, then you go in for your transfer day and it's back in the surgery center and they, uh, they bring the embryo into the room in it's little Petri dish because it has to be at like a very specific temperature as if it's like in your uterus. And so they bring it in. It's so cute. And they, 
they project it onto the monitor and they give you a picture of it. Like they, they take like a microscope microscope and they take a picture of your embryo and you get to take it home. So we like took our first family picture and we were holding our little embryo picture up and like took a selfie and, um, and they, they suck it into a catheter and they put the catheter like, you know, into your uterus and they like very slowly inject it in there. And then like, then your embryo is in there. And um, so since the embryo is at technically day five, you can take a pregnancy test um, two weeks, like in the first day of your missed period is what they always say for for people who are just doing this naturally. And so, but usually you see like all those tests that are like, find out six days sooner. And that basically means six days before you're the first day of your period and you have a period 14 days after you ovulate, if that makes sense. So a day five embryo, um, you've still got uh, nine days to go basically. So, so you're already five days in after ovulation. So they put the embryo in and it's a day five embryo. And so then you wait nine days and the clinic has you come in for a blood draw on that day and they will test the number and then for a healthy pregnancy it's over a certain number but in a healthy pregnancy it's also doubling every two to three days and so then you have to come back two days after that initial draw if it's positive and get another blood draw to confirm that it's actually doubling because for some people who have a lot of miscarriages or you know have a hard time getting pregnant that can be a sign of um an early issue not that they can really do much of about it at that point but they can check your hormone levels and adjust things if they really need to or, or like my thyroid level was really low and so um they were I was able to start a thyroid medicine because that can cause miscarriage too so so yeah so you wait these like nine days which are the, like the longest days of your entire life and there's this whole belief in the infertility community like online people always say I'm I'm poopo p-u-p-o I'm pregnant until proven otherwise because for a lot of people those are the only nine days that they actually are like carrying their genetic embryo inside of them. And so it's kind of, it's super nerve wracking, but it's also kind of like this time of celebration, like, like my baby's inside of me sort of a thing. So, so it was hard and I did not make it to my blood test. I took a home pregnancy test. Um, what day, like day five or day six, I think day six after they had, they had done the transfer and it was positive. So, I mean, we had a good, we had a good feeling. Uh, I took one every single day after that. So, um, but it's still nerve wracking because you're like, what if, what if the, what if the number is super low and it's not a viable pregnancy or something? Yeah. But it was actually super high. My number was really high when we went into the doctor and, and they were really optimistic. And then after that, um, they wait until, so at that point you're four weeks pregnant because they count from the first day of your missed period for normal people. And so basically the first day of your missed period, which is 14 days after ovulation or nine days post five day transfer for someone doing IVF, that that day you're four weeks along. So then you have to wait until about seven or eight weeks along. And then they do an ultrasound to check for a heartbeat. That's kind of like the next hurdle. So then you're waiting from that blood test day until your ultrasound day to make sure you see that little flicker of a heart and um, and that's when, that's when you, they call it graduation day. And then, then you're just normal. You and just go just off to whatever pregnancy. doctor. And, it's so yeah. interesting because there's so, so, so many steps involved and something can create another hurdle and another barrier. And you can keep having all these steps put in the process. And then it sounds like at any point for a lot of people, you may have to go back to step one. Like, when you're talking yeah. about all these points to celebrate the success, but we're not there yet, there's just so many places in this process where you could really just be like, oh, and now we have to start again. It sounds so, so difficult and so stressful. And like, I I didn't realize that it it's not just like, okay, you do it and then it didn't work. And unfortunately you have to start again. It's like, there are so many pieces in this process that have to go right for it to work. It's crazy. And it's so costly. It's like every time that something like that was one of the reasons I wanted a fresh transfer because I was like, I don't want to pay for for a frozen transfer now because that's just more money out of our pocket. And that should be the last thing that I'm thinking about. And luckily, my husband is more the financial person. I just kind of get really worried about spending a lot of money. And he I mean, and this was also a big part of this journey. So um, so 
my, as soon as we found out that we needed to do IVF, uh, we were flying down. My parents were snowboarding in Arizona for my 30th birthday. We flew down there and I was crushed. I was, I was thinking we couldn't do IVF for at least a year because we needed to save up enough money to do it. And we walked into the house and uh, my parents had a card sitting on our bed and inside was $13,000, a check for $13,000. And they, they were like, you know, we're at a point where we can, we, we have this money and, um, like if we can support you, then we can support you. And uh, my dad actually had developed pneumonia while down there. And it was just a uh, total whirlwind. And he passed away two, two weeks later. Aww. And so it was like, it was crushing for sure. Um, because I had that dream. But I, don't, I mean, you probably I don't know if you did this. I feel like it's a pretty common thing that happens um, when a parent dies or really anybody dies. But I kind of like went back through like all these last things. What was the last meal we ate together? What was the last thing he said to me? All of these like last things. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, what was the last gift he gave me? Because mm-hmm. like whatever shirt it was, I want to cherish it or whatever necklace it was. I want to like wear it all the time. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like the last gift my dad gave me was the ability to have babies. Wow. And it was just like. Just super, yeah. super touching and stuff. And then when we saw the heartbeat, it was like, I I made it to be there when he died. And it was just like, it was more crushing than I thought to hear his heartbeat stop. Like this whole heart was in this world and like making this person that I loved so much alive. And then all of a sudden it was gone. It, it was like this heart wasn't in the world anymore. It was just such a crazy thing to think about. And then all of a sudden seeing this little flicker of a baby who was a part my dad through mm-hmm. me sort of a thing mm-hmm. and to be like, Oh my gosh, I like made this whole new heart in this world. And it's like beating a new, like it didn't exist eight weeks ago. And all of a sudden it's here and it's part of me and it's a part of him. And it wasn't like a replacement thing, but it was just like, that was just like such a crazy component, but we were super lucky that we had family that was able to help us out because we didn't have to worry as much about the money, but still it's, you know, it's a fact in the back of your mind. Like you're saying, some people go through it and then they're like, you know, they, they get one embryo and they transfer that embryo and it doesn't take, and then they have to go back and they do all the stims again and they have to do the surgery again. And it's just, I, like, yeah. I cannot even imagine how difficult that must be for people like that. Or, you know, we only transferred one embryo, but a lot of people do transfer two to up their odds and stuff and and just losing one embryo it's like some people will be like well at least one survived and it's like well that other one was my baby like to me it was my child and I think that's that's something people don't understand is when we're talking about embryos and it's you've gone through this process that's your baby that that really the loss of an embryo is I think for a lot of people they don't understand how significant that is so I think that's yeah so after going through this process and You now have a beautiful baby. Congratulations. Do you think you you would do it again after all this? Um, So I definitely would not do the full IVF again. um, But because we had five embryos and our very first embryo took, we actually just did our second round of frozen embryo transfer. And so, so I will only get pregnant by frozen embryo transfer. We only have... Um, I mean, now three more shots because this next one so far has taken. It's very, very early. I'm almost six weeks now. So who knows what will actually happen? We haven't had that like little flickering heartbeat um, appointment yet. That'll happen next week. So fingers crossed it all works out. But we only have so many shots at this. And so so I will do I'll continue doing the frozen embryo transfers every time. But that only involves um, I take progesterone to support it. And, um, they really like, they work on your natural cycle. You do have to have like a lot of the monitoring again. So they, they want to make sure they, they go off you naturally ovulating. So I, you know, started ovulating again after I had uh, my first baby and they just watch and watch and see, you know, where's the egg follicle? Is it maturing? And then the day that they think you're about to ovulate, they, you give yourself a trigger shot so that you know that you will ovulate and then you go in for the transfer five days later. So there's none of that, like, uh, no injections this time around. Well, I guess the trigger shot was one injection uh, and I had to do it myself this time. And, and I was very proud of myself for doing it. Yeah. And I'm sure the second time 
you're experiencing some of these things, it's like a totally different experience because it's not all this unknown. You've done it and you like are from in like hearing you talk, you sound like you could be a fertility doctor. You know, so many words I've never heard of before. Um, (laughs) You learn a lot. You learn a lot. So what advice would you give to people who are experiencing infertility and considering IVF? I think just um, like this is the time in your life to just do whatever you need to do and give yourself a lot of grace and don't worry about anybody else. Like if you don't want to go to that baby shower, don't go to that baby shower or um, like my clinic was very clear. We do not put you on bed rest. That does not help your odds. You actually do need to be up and moving around and be like a normal person. If you're laying in bed, that tells your body and your embryo don't stick around because this person's got an issue. They're laying around all the time. They're probably sick or have an issue. And so, I mean, I was, I I didn't do bed rest or anything, but I like, I wanted to relax. I wanted to be on my own. I didn't want to see people. So I just started like my husband, I just sort of agreed whatever I wanted was what happened. So parties that we missed, we missed, um, like people that I wanted to see, I saw and, whatever I want to do on the weekends is what we did. And it just sort of like, it just made it easier for me. The whole thing is just hard. Um, and also people, especially after my dad died and I was like, I want to do this yesterday still, you know, even my doctor was like, if you want to take a little time. And I was like, no, I don't. And, and don't, you know, don't, don't let people make you feel like you're doing this too quickly or jumping into it or, um, you know, like go take a vacation and try to get pregnant one last time or something, whatever you want to do, like your timeline is your timeline and don't feel bad about it. And, um, yeah, just like take care of yourself and, and be nice to yourself. Yeah. And I guess also advice that we touched on earlier, if your friend is going through it, if you know someone who's going through it, just shut the fuck up and be supportive. Like no one needs unsolicited advice. It's like not your role. And that's what I think. Like, I mean, and this, this was for everything like infertility, uh, loss, all that stuff. It's like, if you don't know what to say, just say that. And just like ask the person what they need. A lot of times, like we just, we don't know what to say. And so we say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And so just like saying to your your friends, like, so, you know, we're having a really hard time and it looks like we're going to do IVF. Just say like, wow. That sounds really hard. I have no idea what to ask or what to say. You know, can you tell me? Because I had no problem telling people, especially after my dad died. Like, I didn't want to hear, I'm sorry. I wanted to hear, this sucks so bad. He was an awesome guy. And this is the most terrible thing that's ever happened. Right. Like, that's what I wanted to hear. Not like, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay, got it. Right. It's just, it's the same thing with infertility. Like, I wanted to hear, you know, like, you're going to be a good mom. Like, I wanted to hear those types of things and not... I don't know, you know, not like go, go look into adoption and right. don't spend your money on this sort of a thing. Like this is my choice. So just like ask somebody, what do you want to hear? What can I do for you? Sometimes like I didn't want people to check in with me. I purposefully told my employer that I wasn't getting my blood test done until two days after, because if it was negative, I wanted two days to myself to be really sad and not have to tell anybody. And so your friend might not want you checking in on them all the time, or they might want you to text them every single day to ask them, you know, like, is that estrogen hitting you now? Or and I think are you feeling extra emotional? That's a good thing as a friend is to be like, I don't really know, you know, how I can best support you. If there's anything that I can do, let me know. Like, I will check in. Don't check in. Tell me what you need because I'm here for you. And I don't, you know, I, I just want to help. And like, I yes. think it's okay with loss, with fertility, all of these issues to say, I don't know what to do. What do you want from me? Because I want to do that. So I think yes. that's big. Like that's a universal truth. Um, and I'm sorry that anyone would say anything different. I'm sorry people are giving you advice. That's really, really frustrating in a time that's already very challenging. Um, so yeah, this is this is really informative. I totally did not understand what IVF was. And uh, I, my heart goes out to people going through it. I mean, it is so stressful. I'm glad those online communities are a source of information and community because going through this alone sounds really, really challenging too. And like not knowing what's normal or what um, to expect. I just think that sounds really hard. So I'm really glad you're on this podcast too to to share your story. And um, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Any other like, any other sort of 
just like watch outs or advice or any last pieces of wisdom for listeners who are now like, oh my God, IVF seems insane. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like you can do it. You could get through it. If you're, you know, if you're worried, I don't think that we think about uh, like preconception health and not that there's that much that you can really do about it, but um, you know, like just talk to your doctor. And I think like, I was just so worried that something was going to be wrong, I shied away from it. And so just, you know, make sure you're, you're in touch with your body and you know your body and um, just like you can make it essentially. I love it. Whatever you need to do, you're going to be able to do it and, and be just fine. I love it. Thank you so much for being here, Carrie. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.